Good morning, church. It's good to be gathered together this morning under the Word of God. Um, we just read from Isaiah 40, but a couple of verses before that, in verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. The Word of our God will stand forever. And so, this morning, we're privileged to gather and look at His Word together knowing that his word tells us who he is. Today we continue in our study together of our series that we've entitled The God We Can Know. It's a, a series based on the question that we find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question of what is God? Confession goes on to answer in this way, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Listed in this answer are some of the attributes, the characteristics of God that are found in the study of Scripture. And so these are the focus for this series. We, we want to know God, and we want to see him as he's uh, displayed himself to be in his word. Not that we would dissect God, uh, into portions or parts, but that we would look and, and see these aspects and these, these portions would give us a clearer picture of who He is as a whole. We'd see Him clearly and know Him. Last week was our introduction to this sermon series, and we went over some of the reasons why we should even desire to know God. What, what are the benefits of knowing God? I hope that this week, we've pressed in to that desire, not just learning about God, but actually knowing God, seeing Him in the face of His Son, Jesus. I pray that, by the, that God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, would continue to stir a desire in us to experience Him through His Word, and that our lives would reflect that, that they would re reflect the intimacy of that relationship. But because of our morning quiet times, our lives would look different. Because of our time spent in the Word, we would act different and live different. This morning in our passage from Isaiah, we'll look at God, the supreme being. We will see that He is like no one or no thing else. One of the ways that the attributes of God have been categorized is into the division of these incommunicable attributes and these communicable attributes. Attributes of God that are unique to Him are considered incommunicable. They're difficult to understand because they're not true of creatures. The immensity, immutability, eternality, infinity of God, these are all characteristics of God that are incommunicable. They these traits belong solely to the Creator Himself, God. The other set of attributes are His communicable attributes. The communicable attributes are, uh, find some reflection or similarity in human beings because we're created in the image of God. And since we are created in the image of God, we carry and exhibit some of His characteristics. And so these are at least partially comprehensible to us. We have to be cautious here, though. 
Because it would be a mistake to say that we share these same attributes as God, that he's just quantitatively more. That would be like saying, we have wisdom, but God has more wisdom. The reality is that the perfect wisdom of God is not more wise. It's actually, by its perfection and completeness, something different. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of man share some resemblance, but they're two very different things. It's a qualitative difference. It's completely other. You may be thinking that this is a little heady, and I agree. This is not the water that I normally swim in, and yet it is incredibly helpful to define the terms of how we can know and what we can know about God if our goal is to know Him. I would encourage you this week to explore some of the references listed on the sermon page. Uh, they've helped me over the last couple of weeks to begin to engage some of these theological and philosophical questions and truths about who God is. And whether you're in school or, or you're retired, um, the hope is that all of you would be able to find some sort of on-ramp to this extra study and be encouraged uh, in your knowledge of God as it grows. In our passage today, we're going to look at his being, the being of God. So let's pray and let's ask God to reveal himself to us by the miraculous power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the gift of it that, that it remains forever that it endures, that we've had this gift handed to us and by the power of your Holy Spirit it was written down and it's been preserved even in its interpretation, Lord, so that it's the true word of God and we get to read it. We can pick up our Bible and we can read your word, your revealed character. God, I pray that today we would acknowledge that you are holy and that you are other, that we would come reverently before you to, to ask that you would reveal yourself to us. God, that even in the asking, we know you've already promised. You've promised yourself and you've gone beyond promise to actually give yourself to us in the gospel work of Jesus. And so we thank you for that. We pray that this morning we would see you in your word. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We thank you that you are answering this promise um, to your church around the world. Lord, that today and every day you are revealing yourself more and more to the people that you have purchased that are longing to know you. And you are satisfying them with that knowledge. And so we thank you for that. We know that even before we ask, you've already answered. And so we rejoice in it. We love you and praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be looking uh, in the first section, verses 12 through 17, to begin with this morning. And as we, as we begin, as we look at verse 12, we already have our first question. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? So our first question this morning is, who has measured God? 
This is obviously a rhetorical question, but God drives the point home by asking a question in several different ways this morning. First, who has the physical ability to measure the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? It's as if we were going to drink from a, a stream and we scooped up the water and we, and we sipped it out of our hand. He's saying, who can measure all of the waters of the earth in the, in the hollow of his hand? And follows that with, who can mark the extent of the heavens, the width of the heavens with the span or width of his hand? And so, at this point, the listener who would be of Hebrew heritage would quickly recall the creation story. And he remember that God created light when he separated the waters from the heavens. He uses water and he uses heavens. And it reminds him of Genesis chapter 1, 6 through 8, where it says that the waters hovered above, that, that God separated the waters from the heavens. And so God's first two challenges go back to the very beginning of the story. And they point to his acts in creation. Immediately we're brought to remember the God who was there before anything was. R.C. Sproul helps with this understanding of God's being. He said this, The thing that characterizes creaturely existence is not being, but becoming. Because the chief character trait of all creatures is they change. Whatever you are today, you will be different ever so slightly tomorrow. And today, you're that much different from what you were yesterday. If it's only that you're 24 hours older than you were at this time yesterday. He continues, If you ask me, is God? I say, yes, of course God is. But does he exist? Not in this sense. Because that would make him what? A creature. A dependent. Derived existence. But rather we say God is being. God is being, not becoming, not changing. He is eternally the same, and so we say there's one being. This is what God is reminding himself, reminding the people of right here in the, in the very beginning of our passage today. He's bringing them back to creation to establish that he is being. He alone is being. He's pointing them back and emphasizing that he is the creator and we are are his creatures. Continues in verse 12 by asking, if anyone can establish the mass of the earth or weigh the hills or the mountains and the balance. Kids, before electronic scales where you just step on, you look down and it immediately tells you how much you weigh. They had these, uh, these things called a balance scale. And so the balance scale would have this long bar across, or maybe a shorter bar. It depends on what you're trying to, trying to measure. But it would have a, a bar across, and it would balance on a fulcrum. And at the ends of the bars would be these two plates that had equal measure. And so, with nothing on them, the balance beam would just stay nice and level. But as soon as you began to put something on one, it would tilt. And so you would have to put something else on the other side. And so what they would do is they would take the, the thing that you would desire to measure, and they would put it on one side, and then they would take known weights and put them on the other side until it all equaled out, and it balanced nicely. So one side would have whatever it is that you're trying to weigh, and the other side would have these known weights, and what you would do is at the end, when it was level, you would add up the weights, and that's how you would measure them. And so 
This is the picture that we're given. Now imagine the size of the balance scale required to hold a mountain. Much less mountains, which is what the verse says. This is the outrageous image God is painting in the minds of his people. And if trying to get a physical grasp on God and how to measure him physically was not enough, he goes on in 13 and he says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Again, referencing his singular role in creation, God draws us back to Genesis 1 where it says, the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters of the, of the face, the face of the waters. And so we're reminded that God is spirit. How would we measure the Spirit? Well, we'd have to know that before we could even guess at who could measure the Spirit. This is some mind-blowing stuff, and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. We need to understand that we are not like God. In John 4, 24, Jesus is describing the Father to the Samaritan woman at the well, and this is what he says. He says, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit in truth. So this is part of our understanding in the catechism when it says that God is spirit. Beyond that, can that spirit be measured? No, of course not. Isaiah continues with questions asking, who can add to the knowledge of God or give him counsel? In verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who has God asked for understanding? I'm going to move quickly through that verse because we're going to come back in, in later in this series and look at the wisdom of God as one of his attributes and the justice of God as one of his attributes. And we'll press into the, those things more clearly. Suffice to say, there's no teaching God any of these things. Again, he's driving home the point that we can't contribute, we can't give him anything, we can't add to him. I'm reminded of the discourse at the end of Job where God uses the same type of rhetoric, asking Job, were you there when I created, when I told the water they could come so far and no further, when I put the mountains in place, when I created the animals, were you there? And for three chapters, he just questions Job, asking if Job was there and, and participated in that creative act. And finally, Job gets it, and he just covers his mouth, and he repents. Who are we to tell God? Can we add anything to him? Can we teach him anything? No. Verses 15 through 17, we see the nations around Israel and God reminds his people that all of these other nations are nothing compared to him. They're dust on the scales that we talked about earlier. The, the dust won't even register. They're a drop in the bucket. They're insignificant. And he points to the coastlands, which at the time were, were made up a vast majority of the known world. And he refers to them as fine dust. And I can just imagine that fine dust being blown away or, or seeping through his hands. There's, insignificant. And he specifically calls out Lebanon, and Lebanon was a country adjacent to Israel, and, and in Lebanon, uh, it was famous for these huge cedar trees, and because they, they were probably the biggest trees in the known world at that time. They were just massive, and God 
God calls him out and he says that those trees, they would not even be fuel for the fire. And even if you had all the beasts of the, of the earth, they wouldn't suffice to make a burnt offering to the God who is greater and mightier than all of those things. And he closes the paragraph with verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Nothing. And then he goes beyond that, less than nothing, emptiness. So our first question, who has measured God? No one. No one has measured God. He is immense, immeasurable, infinitely greater than we could possibly imagine. Wow, that's awesome. In verse 18, we find our second question. The question is, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Who is like God? That's our question. And the answer, the rhetorical answer that's given, an idol? No. Should we compare him to an idol like those nations around us, those nations that worship these handmade gods? Those great craftsmen who work with precious metals, the best that they have to create these beautiful objects, and yet those beautiful objects, they will not move, it says. Doesn't matter how skillful the craftsmen, those idols are dead, they're inanimate. Is that where we want to make our comparison to God? Should we compare the Creator to the created? The one who has already reminded us several times of how he created, we're going to compare him to this lifeless object made by the creatures he created. No way. No, we can't compare him to that. Isaiah continues, and in verse 21, he reminds the hearer that our God is eternal. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He has been there since the beginning from the foundations of the earth. Before that, there was nothing. God made something out of nothing. So all of our finite history, God has been. He is infinite in space and eternal in time, having no beginning or ending of either one. Revelation 1.8 says that He's the Alpha and the Omega. He was and He is and He is to come. He is infinite. And he's been revealing himself to his people for as long as we can conceive time. So yes, they've heard. They, they know. And yet, he's kind. And he reminds them again. He reminds them that he is above the earth. And all of us are like grasshoppers. I remember when I was a boy, um, I, I loved playing with bugs. And my favorites were roly-polies. And so... Roly-polies are these harmless gray beetles that, that have scales. They may not even be beetles, I'm not sure. But it had, they had scales and they looked like a centipede. And the best thing about roly-polies was that as soon as you touched them, they would roll up into this ball. And then you could do all sorts of fun things with them. And I grew up with two brothers, and so we had a lot of fun with roly-polies. And I'm not proud of some of the things that I did with them, but I think you get the point that 
that as I sat there over these bugs and they would be on the ground, they would try to move and I would I'd tap them and they'd roll up into a ball and they could, couldn't go anywhere unless I allowed it. And so God is painting that picture. He's saying that he sits over the, the whole of the earth, the circle of the earth. And we are like grasshoppers. We're like bugs. He's omnipotent. He has all of the power. And he maintains that power over both the heavens, as we look. Verse 22, he said, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And here he's not talking about uh, heaven. He's talking about the heavens and the stars and space. And the psalmist picks up this same theme in Psalm 89, verse 6. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? See, all created things in heaven and on earth, princes and rulers, he brings them to nothing and emptiness. He, he drives that point home again in verse 23, nothing and emptiness. A comparison that's made between the princes and the rulers is that to, to plants and, and shrubs that are planted and scarcely sown and scarcely do they stem and take root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Wither and are blown away, nothing and empty. And then God again asks, verse 25, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God's reminding us, even in, even in the name that he uses here, it's not the Lord Almighty, it's not uh, any one of his other names, he uses the Holy One, holy being separate, distinct, apart from, different. We, we don't understand him. He is other, he is not like us. He is the supreme being. Who is like God? But isn't, isn't this what we want? We want to be like God. We want to have control. This is our story since the very beginning. This is a lie that was fed to us in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, that the father of lies says to Adam and Eve, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, we all have this desire to be like God. It's in our sin that we defy God. We say that we don't need him because we too are powerful and strong. We can do it. We say, on my own, I can live. It's the rebellious cry of every sinner's heart. And we're all sinners. And so we take and we eat the apple. We defy the good commands of the Father. Commands that both protected and satisfied. You see, we'd been given every other tree, but it wasn't enough. And we'd, be given, we'd been given the presence of God and we could enjoy Him, and yet we wanted more. And instead of communion with God, we sought to be God. And the price for our arrogance was separation from God. 
but God. But God, He gave up Himself. This perfect Spirit became flesh and He dwelt among us. He Flesh and bone in the person of Jesus. Jesus became fully man and yet remained fully and completely God. Perfect, all-powerful, infinite, unchanging God. God incarnate. And Jesus walked in perfect obedience, fulfilling the whole of the law. The obedience that, that we rejected, he walked in to the Father. He was perfect, and because of his perfection, he was the once and for all sacrifice, the atonement. That sacrifice that, that God alludes to in Isaiah 40 that, that can't, can't be built with the greatest trees or all of the, all of the beasts of the earth. Jesus became the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice, the atoning one. Jesus' death on the cross is the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. Because he bore our sin, he suffered God's wrath in our place. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He was separated from God. And yet he was God. So he bore our sin. Because we've received his righteousness in this exchange, we are now heirs and we commune with God again. We're adopted into the family. We have all the... All the identity as a son and daughter of God. And so we can walk in his perfect, the, the perfect obedience that Jesus walked in, he's now given to us, and we get to walk in it. And our hearts are regenerated from I want to be God to now our cry is I want to know God. We begin to understand that our being is not like God's being. We are not immutable. We change we are transformed. Regeneration happens in the deepest part of our being, and we are changed. And this is the good news of the gospel. That God is not like us, and we are not like Him, and he's, He has come, and He saved us. And so, God is not like us. Back into our text in Isaiah. And yet He invites us to know, partially, what he is like. In verse 26, he says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's still talking about the stars and the heavens. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So we lift up our eyes and we look and we see the stars. And it reminds us of the greatness of our God. It reminds us that He is great, that He is mighty, that He is strong and powerful. And yet He is at the same time compassionate. He's intimate. He knows them by name. He's attentive. He, 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 none of them are missing. He knows them. This is the beauty of it. We're known by God. Stars are known by God. God is intimately involved, even as He is separate and wholly different. He's intimate in our lives. So this morning we remember, God is a spiritual being. He's unique in His immensity, His eternality, His immutability. 
And it's valuable and good to try to define, to try to measure, to try to understand him, but it's ultimately incomplete. We cannot plumb the depths of it because our, our, our plumb would never reach the bottom of the ocean. That's how great God is. God is unlike human beings because he's other. He is being. We are created. He is the creator. He's holy. This is all true. And yet God still calls us to look to him in creation, looking at the stars, in his word, and in his son, and to live into response, in response to what he has revealed to us. He alone upholds all things, as Hebrews says about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. May we see him. May we be in awe of him. May we worship him with our lives as we grow in our knowledge of him. And may we pray as Paul prayed in his letter to Timothy, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, you're good. God, you're good and you're holy, separate and different. And we don't, we don't understand that, and yet you've invited us to learn. You've invited us to gain in our knowledge and in our experience of who you are. And the greatest gift that you've given us is, is the experience of Jesus, the knowing of him, seeing the fullness of you in Jesus. And so we rejoice in that today. We thank you that despite our rebellion, you have saved us. Lord, you didn't crush us like bugs, Lord, but you saved us. You entered in. And Jesus humbled himself and came and purchased for himself a church. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that today we would remember that, that out of our understanding of your being, that we would live and move and have our being, that we would look to you, and as we see you, you give definition and you give purpose to life, Lord, for your glory. And so we thank you for that this morning. We pray that even as we struggle with, like, what does this mean for us? Like, God is holy and he's perfect and he's other and he's strong and all of these other attributes. Lord, what does that mean for us? And yet, I pray that we would just sit in this. We look to you. We would be in awe of you, and that would lead to worship in every aspect of our life. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning. Thank you for your grace towards us. In your name we pray. Amen.